200 head of 500 pound calves were shipped from Georgia to a dry lot in eastern Kansas. The calves were split, and 35 head of lighter calves were housed separate. One week after arrival, 30 calves were dead within two hours of being fed. Find out why, coming up. Welcome to Talks Talk. I'm Brad White from the Beef Cattle Institute here at Kansas State, and I'm joined today by Dr. Scott Fritz. Hi, Scott. Hey, Brad. How's it going? Good. Happy to have you with us because Dr. Fritz is a board-certified toxicologist who works here in Kansas State College of Veterinary Medicine. He handles a lot of the toxicology cases here at the Kansas State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab and teaches in our toxicology courses. One of the things that we're going to do on this podcast is talk through some of those cases and work through because a lot of times we learn a lot after the fact. So for this particular case that I described at the start, be interested to get what your thoughts are as you go through. And Scott, I want you to tell me a little bit more, maybe start at the beginning. I gave an overview, but tell us a little bit more about how this case started. Sure. Like you covered, this was a group of calves that came from Georgia. They were kind of put together in various sale barns, uh, kind of a high risk group to start with. They shipped them to Eastern Kansas. Um, this, the way this particular area sets up, the producer's got to sort off 30 or 40 of these lighter calves. Um, he does this every year. And then he's he starts those smaller calves in a pen away from his bigger cohorts. Those pens are a couple miles apart. So this case, the, the calves came in, he got them up and going, you know, the first week didn't have any issues, but on day seven, he got a new shipment of a commercial creep feed type product. You know, it had some cracked corn, some distillers, some commercial pellets in there. Um, it had some menensin in there and then also um, a non-protein nitrogen source. It's probably urea. So these calves um, in the smaller pen, he fed them that evening at about 530 and a neighbor drove by, you know, sometime around 730 and they were already a substantial portion of them were dead. And it makes you think, obviously, of the feed and toxin, especially with the speed of this. But there are some other stuff that could be going on with these calves. We're talking about high-risk calves have traveled halfway across the country, potentially BRD. But I wouldn't expect that type of position or that big of a reaction. So what did the producer do next? Yeah, so the, I agree. That, I mean, there's a lot of things that could be going on here. 30 out of 35 calves dead within a couple hours. I, there's not a lot of infectious disease that will do that. So that kind of clues us in that there's some point source exposure going on there. So, you know, at, at this point he called his local veterinarian. So it's after hours. The veterinarian came out and uh, he saw some clinical signs. What he described over the phone uh, was some respiratory distress some salivation. And there were a lot of calves that were bloated. Which is something we would expect with toxin and feed as they go forward. So what, what did he do as far as diagnostics? So the veterinarian performed a necropsy on one of those calves. Um, he kind of had a, a differential diagnosis with the menensin being the, the player here. Um, so I think that kind of maybe casted a shadow over the case from the get-go. Um, so he, he performed a necropsy and submitted some formalin-fixed samples to us to make that diagnosis of menensin. And it was, you know, he sent in some heart, some skeletal muscle, um, lung, and kidney, and they were all fixed in formalin. So any fresh tissues at this point? Nope, we did not get any fresh tissue. Okay. And then what about feed samples? So there was a feed sample that was retained, and they sent that to a, an outside lab to quantify the menensin in the feed. Okay, so we've had 30 out of 35 die send in fixed tissues and some feed samples to, to quantify the menensin in the feed. So then what happened? 
So that's, you know, it's, it's not a bad diagnostic plan. So we did the histopath here at the KSVDL. Um, there was some severe pulmonary edema. Um, they kind of, the pathologist classified it as an older inactive bronchopneumonia, which not all that surprising given their presentation. Um, but there were no lesions in the heart or skeletal muscle, which is what we would expect with a Menensen case. So with an ionophore, we're going to have those musculoskeletal lesions. So, so far, what we know is the feed's off. We've got some results back from the D lab. Any specific actions that, that they took at this point in time relative to the cattle themselves? Because we're still, th- I'm still thinking toxin feed source based. But there could be something else going on, right? They were in a pasture. They'd been there for a week, but who knows what they found. Yeah, so these are they're in a dry lot. And, you know, assuming that this was a Menensen case, the veterinarian did the right thing and pulled all the any of the remaining feed and didn't offer any more of that. So that ultimately is what stopped the issue. And that's, that's always a good thing to do when you've got a, a new feed source and have a pretty quick onset of issues like that. It's never a bad idea to pull whatever feed in question is away and eliminate access. Okay. And so then when the lab results came back from the feed, what did the menensin levels look like? They were right where you'd expect them. They they didn't foresee any issues with the concentrations they found. Okay. So at that point, were there any further tests run or, and maybe some of you listening along or thinking through in your mind, well, what else is going on? Because I'm still thinking feed. Yeah. And that's, it was a frustrating case at this point. So we had more calves out of that group, you know, the remainders, there were five or six left. They kind of got to looking like a chronic lunger type thing. Um, as they would die, they'd bring them in, um, submitted for necropsy here, and they all had typical bovine respiratory disease like you would expect. So and, were there further tests? Because on the first samples, the very first samples of the cases that were taken, fresh tissues were not taken, only fixed tissues. So on the ones that were submitted here, did you start getting some fresh tissues from those? Yeah, we got pretty aggressive taking samples. Um, there was some diagnostic work done based on infectious disease at this point because it looked like a typical respiratory disease. So we have went to identify some virus and bacteria type stuff we'd expect to be involved. And then we had the entire calves at our disposal. We took um, some of the fresh tissues that we wanted within the toxicology lab. But, I, but I'm going to go back to what you said earlier because we're not going to have an infectious disease that's going to kill 30 out of 35. It's just really rare to go forward, right? So right. still still thinking infectious disease could be contributing to these that are dying later, but different than the 30. Yeah, and there was a definite, you know, it was roughly 30 dead within a day and then like a two-week break, and then they started tipping over onesie-twosie type that you would expect. There's only so many onesies and twosies left in that particular just pen. Not very many. <laughs> so, okay, so then at that point started shifting, maybe thinking about different things that could be going on. So were there any fresh tissues or further samples that you sent off for a different analysis? So, and many of us have been through this scenario. I've tried one, two, three things that were on my differential list. Now I'm down to, I need to figure out something else. Yeah. So we started digging into the fresh tissues that we had. Um, You know, there's, I think we did some trace mineral work. We looked at some ocular fluid, trying to quantify some nitrate in there. Um, we looked for some ammonia in there, did some histopath on some brain, trying to make sure that we didn't have a polio situation going on. Um, I think we did some brain sodium just to double check that there wasn't a water delivery problem. And basically all of that came back normal. Okay. So at that point, did you decide to do any other analysis on the feed? 
Yeah. So at that point, we, um, whatever the outside lab, I don't remember who did it. We called and had them quantify the urea in that source, in the feed source. Um, we actually did a site visit at this place too, and they had some retained feed samples. So I grabbed some of my own, um, which is, I think, a point we should cover um, retained feed samples. But um, I grabbed my own samples, and we also did some of that quantifying the urea in that um, supplement. And what'd you find out when you quantified the urea? So both the sample that was sent off the day of and the sample I had were both 10x over what the urea concentration should have been. And I don't recall specific numbers for you off the label, but it was um, a sub- substantial overdose. So it's our ureas, our non-protein nitrogen that's in there. And that non-protein nitrogen is, it, that's well above our limit of toxi- toxic Yeah. And levels. so and we intentionally feed it to them. You know, calves can use non-protein nitrogen to make protein. It's a basically more economic way to feed protein to animals. But once you have an overdose situation, you basically overload the body's metabolic systems and you end up with too much ammonia in the blood and they get neurologic and they'll bloat, um, similar to what we saw here. Okay. So a lot of the, so common clinical signs, neurologic bloat, and then death, relatively sudden, especially with this high of a, a level, you talked about it, it's hours after they were exposed to that feed. That's the answer to our case as we go through is it was urea toxicosis due to too much in the feed uh, mixing error as it comes in. So let's go back to the, and review kind of our game film as we go back to the start. Now with hindsight, we've got 2020 vision and we could say we might've done some things. Sounds like one of the things that was done very well, the calves are removed from the feed right away, which, which hopefully limited some of our problems. But what else might you do differently if you were going back and you wanted to go through this from start to finish knowing what you know now. Yeah, no, I mean, it's easy to say from hindsight, but it's the sample submission we got was all formal and fixed tissue, and we would really like to have some fresh tissue. And in this case, it just happens that the ocular fluid is how we're going to make the diagnosis. So we really needed an, at least one eyeball or the ocular fluid off of one of those initial deads. So if I'm thinking toxin, I should send in both fresh and or at least collect fresh and fixed tissue, including ocular fluid. And I think a lot of times, I don't know if liver is helpful in this case, but for a lot of our toxins, we want a sample of liver. Is that right? Yeah. We want liver. We want um, kidneys, the main elimination organ for most of these neurologic cases that, you know, if you have any neurologic signs at all, I know it's a pain to knock a brain out of a calf, but that sample is oftentimes the one we're going to hang our hat on. If we don't have it, we can't do it. Um, And if you submit, you know, a complete submission, it doesn't mean we have to use all that, but if we don't have it, we can't run it. Uh, exactly right. Or And some of those you can store, right? You can sure. store and keep if I don't want to send them in. Speaking of storing things, you mentioned if I am in a case like this, even if I send some feed off to the lab, save some feed back, right? Save a sample of that feed and maintain some type of log of when you saved it, where you kept it, where you put it, right? Make sure that I've got my paperwork in order on where that came from. Yeah. And I think that comes into play, even with this being a potential menensin case, we would still want that feed sample. Because a lot of times with menensin, I think the timeline is really important. Those deaths don't usually peak for about a week after they're exposed. And so you almost never have the sample in question in those cases. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the key issues is this one is kind of like a hammer. I mean, it's all of a sudden we put in new feed, all of a sudden we've got these calves dying within a few hours. We don't always see it like that. And we'll talk about other cases coming up where they're not this distinct as far as time of exposure to time of death. 
But hopefully this will help as you're practicing and dealing with many different cases. You'll get some tips and pointers from Scott going through what samples should I take? What should I look for? What are some of the things that he's seen in the past? Because I know he's dealt with a lot of cases around the country. The other place that you can find helpful resources is we started a toxicology hotline here. If you're interested, you can go to the Beef Cattle Institute website, click the toxicology button, and you'll find more helpful information and resources. Thanks, Dr. Fritz, for sharing with us and appreciate you joining us and listening as well.